0: Good morning, everyone. Um, I think we'll get started. My name is Will Pomeranz. I'm deputy director here at the Cannon Institute, and I'd like to welcome to you to our event on ethnic interest group influence on U.S. foreign policy. Uh, unfortunately, our speaker from the Baltic uh, states is not able to make it, Yeva uh, Zaik So um, we're only going to – we're going to have uh, talks from the uh, – talking about the diaspora groups in Armenia and Ukraine, and then open it up for questions. A brief note about some upcoming events. On Tuesday, February 11th at 10 a.m., we will have a talk on sanctions against Russia, successes, failures, and future prospects with Vasil Filipchuk and Anastasia Galuchka, and on Fe- Wednesday, February 12th at 4 p.m., we will have a book talk with Peter Redaway. He is a former director of the Canon Institute, and he will be talking about his latest book on the dissidents. Um, the dissidents. The dissidents, yes. Um, a subject to which he has great knowledge and was very much engaged in uh, back in the time. Um, The past 25 years have witnessed a growing scholarly interest in the role of ethnic interest groups or diasporas in the conceptualization of America's foreign policy. Uh, In this panel, experts will compare and contrast the experiences of now two classical post-Soviet interest groups, Armenia and Ukraine, and to do so, we have two excellent speakers. Uh, The first is Elena Lennon, who is an adjunct professor of political science and national security at the University of New Haven. Uh, she also taught at the University of Bridgeport and at Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, Dr. Len- Lennon's work has appeared in Foreign Affairs and the National Interest, amongst others. And amongst her many distinctions, she is a former Kennan Institute Title Eight short-term scholar. And we're always grateful for this, to the State Department and the Title VIII program for all their support of our fellows here at the Kennan Institute. And our second speaker is Aram Hamperian who is the executive director of the Armenian National Committee of America. He serves as the organization's national point person with the administration, Congress, and the media. And he has testified before Congress, lectured at National uh, Defense University, uh, the Foreign Service Institute, and USAID. And he has been quoted by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and many other media outlets. Uh, So with that, we're gonna turn it over to Elena, and we'll begin our discussion
1: thank you so much oh, is this on yes well thank you so much for coming um, and thank you Will, for that lovely introduction um, and appreciate everybody taking the time uh, to be here this morning given with all that's going on in dc um, my talk is is going to focus on uh, Ukraine in particular and and uh, Ukrainian advocacy groups. Um, I I want to emphasize that it's it's not necessarily an overview of um, the Ukrainian diaspora, but more specifically how the network mobilized and activated in the last six years. Um, so it's it's less of a sort of historical overview and more of a more recent developments um, and trying uh, to. To, to kind of explore how the network activated um, in the last six years, given the the events in Ukraine, um, With that um, you know I want to again emphasize that this uh, th- what I'm going to present is going to be based on a qualitative study that I conducted as as part of the um, uh, fellowship that I had here at Cannon Institute. Um, it, it's not it's based on uh, interviews that I conducted with Ukrainian advocates. Um, and uh, the literature that I'm tapping into here um, is going to be uh, pertaining to social network mobilization, resource mobilization theory, uh, ethnic diaspora in conflict, uh, specifically how conflict in homeland um, activates, uh, activate, activates diaspora uh, uh, in the United States, and also organized interests and in, in their relationship with the United States um, uh, policymakers. Um, Again, um, so my um, my report is based on the interviews that I conducted with Ukrainian advocates. Um, so it, it's not necessarily a historical overview, uh, but I'm going to be reporting uh, directly from uh, citing from their um, interviews and um, reporting their perceptions of uh, what it has been like advocating for the Ukrainian cause uh, in Washington D.C. Um, so, um, you know, one of the things that uh, Came out of my uh, of my research is that uh, in the last six years, uh, the Ukrainian advocates have become much more diverse, multinational, multiethnic, multi generational group. Um, again, to to differentiate advocates of Ukraine or friends of Ukraine from the Ukrainian diaspora per se uh, or an ethnic interest group, um, it's important to emphasize that when I speak, particularly in in this in this talk, about um, Ukrainian, Ukraine's advocates, um, I will be referring to a broad network of actors that uh, you know, goes beyond um, ethnicity alone. So the grouping mechanism is not necessarily ethnic Ukrainians, uh, but it's a diverse group of, of actors who have, in the last six years, uh, chosen to advocate for Ukraine in the United States. Um, um, I also want to emphasize that um, I'm I'm going to be focusing on how the Ukrainian diaspora, Ukrainian advocates engaged with uh, uh, American policymakers in particular, uh, not necessarily covering a broad range of other support uh, that Ukrainian groups in the United States provide to uh, Ukraine, humanitarian aid, um, various uh, political informational support. Um, So this is uh, – my study specifically focused on how Ukraine's advocates engage with U.S. Uh, policymakers um, and what is the nature of that relationship and what are some of the instruments that that are used in in that um, process um, the uh, the three main themes that came out of my interviews uh, that I want to emphasize uh, in this talk in the interest of time uh, will pertain to political and diplomatic support uh, military aid and sanctions those are the three areas that my participants reported haven't been involved in um, and um, sort of uh, advocating in those specific areas uh, to encourage action on, on behalf uh, of U.S. policymakers. So when it comes to political support, political and diplomatic support, um, in, uh, what's remarkable about uh, the efforts of, of the Ukrainian diaspora or Ukrainian advocates is that um, there has been a sort of a, a tremendous outpour of support not just uh, coming from grassroots organizations but also from, uh, from the U.S. government itself. Um, And what's uh, unprecedented about that development, that in 2014 alone, two major pieces of legislation were passed – the Support for the Sovereignty, Integrity, Democracy, and Economic Stability of Ukraine Act, um, and uh, the second act that was passed within the same year was the Ukraine Freedom Support Act uh, that affirmed uh, American support for Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity in the wake of Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Um, uh, the Ukrainian Freedom Support Act was supported by – was sponsored by Senator Bob Menendez uh, from New Jersey and co-sponsored by 14 other senators. Uh, that was the start – that particular uh, FSA, the Freedom Support Act, uh, was the, uh, the, the trigger the start of uh, multiple sanctions on, on several Russian entities. Um, uh, including uh, authorization of, of military and, and political aid uh, that Ukraine said it receiving. So it was, it was a sort of a landmark um, legislative act uh, that triggered um, a, a lot of developments going forward um, and has been sort of instrumental in, um, in, in showing support uh, for Ukraine. Um, again what's, uh, what, what my participants reported to me is that uh, these uh, a sort of unprecedented development of two legislative acts passed in Congress pertaining to one foreign country um, in such outpour of support uh, was in large part uh, a um, – sort of due to their efforts advocating um, and, uh, and, and raising awareness a- about uh, those needs. The second area in which um, the Ukrainian advocates reported to have been involved uh, in terms of raising awareness, um, uh, you know, advocating I'm, – I'm, I'm intentionally not using the word lobbying. Um, and and that I will explain why because you know one of the things that came out of my study is precisely that uh, Ukrainian advocates are not lobbyists um, and and that's what differentiates Ukrainian uh, Friends of Ukraine from some of some of the other ethnic uh, groups or interest groups uh, in in DC in particular is that they don't have a formal lobby um, and um, you know I'm, I'm 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 careful not to to use that term so. Um, Military aid, obviously, was another remarkable development. Uh, until 2014, most of the assistance provided to Ukraine was uh, channeled toward governance reforms in um, you know, building institutions, uh, protecting human rights, uh, things of that nature. Uh, since 2014, security assistance uh, from the Department of Defense uh, was more targeted toward um, you know, military assistance. Uh, and about 60 percent since then of total aid dispersed to Ukraine uh, was uh, military assistance. Uh, Then in 2016, the National Defense Authorization Act established the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, USIA, um, and uh, as part of that initiative, Ukraine was provided with a range of defensive equipment uh, training, uh, including um, armored Humvee vehicles, uh, sniper rifles, um, uh, counter raiders night vision equipment, um, and things of that nature. So since then, on average, about 350 million uh, of uh, uh, defen- uh, security aid is provided to Ukraine. Um, what that effectively did uh, is that now Ukraine is in among the top 10 recipients of U.S. security assistance in the world. Um, again, as was reported to me by my participants, uh, advocates that I've interviewed here in D.C., um, in large part, this effort could be attributed to the, uh, um, the information, the public awareness campaigns, um, and various other engagements that uh, Ukrainian advocates participated in. Um, you know, the military obviously now is is, is is back on the news again in a very different context, uh, but I conducted my interviews in the summer of last year, um, so none of the current developments were um, um, relevant at that time. Um, So I'm I'm going to um, exclude that from my analysis uh, to to stick to what has been – what was reported to me uh, last summer. Now in 2017, as as you may know, uh, the Trump administration licensed the the first commercial export of lethal weapons to Ukraine, and that was a big change from previous administrations. Um, As you may know, uh, in, in 2014, when the Obama administration passed the Ukraine Freedom Support Act, Um, It stopped short of providing Ukraine with lethal weapons. Uh, The the big change that happened in 2017 was that uh, Trump's administration actually authorized uh, the sale of javelins or anti-tank missiles, uh, which are considered offensive lethal weapons. Um, And then the third area, um, sanctions. Uh, Another area in which my participants, again, uh, reported having been involved in um, in various ways um, by way of advocating, again, not lobbying, um, advocating uh, through various instruments that I will outline a little bit later, um, uh, Ukraine-related sanctions. It's important to emphasize that um, the United States has imposed sanctions on, on Russian individuals, uh, entities, um, and, and, and companies um, in, in at least nine different areas. Um, not all of them are related to Ukraine. Uh, I'm going to focus on, on those uh, specific initiatives that were triggered by Russia's aggression in Ukraine, um, but I think it's, it's important to emphasize that um, the, the U.S.-Russia relationship is, is, is a function of um, other international developments, not necessarily related to uh, the events in Ukraine. So, and those areas include election interference, uh, cyber-enabled activities, human rights abuses, the use of chemical weapons, um, as was the case in Great Britain, uh, trade with North Korea, support of Syria and Venezuela. So, there's actually a package of of violations uh, that triggered sanctions on the part of the United States. But when it comes to Ukraine-related sanctions, um, it's um, you know I'll, I'll just point out that. Since 2014, more than 6- 665 persons, um, Russian individuals, have been sanctioned. And those are individuals who were in one way or another involved in undermining Ukraine's security and stability, misappropriating Ukrainian funds, uh, or conducting business, trade, or other investment uh, endeavors in occupied Crimea. All right. um, so. um, What came out of my research uh, by way of how the network actually mobilized itself, who are the friends of Ukraine uh, in D.C., and and how they, um, again, mobilized their efforts, um, I I came up with sort of two large uh, categories. Uh, One uh, type of groups or mobilization network um, could be described as an ad hoc um, group that came out of um, as, as a response to an urgent need um, so there's a lot of organizations that were created in 2014 uh, that were designed for a specific purpose for a specific cause now they what differentiated those groups was that they consisted of, of younger uh, immigrants you know first generation immigrants younger uh, younger um, diaspora members, uh, examples of those groups include United Help Ukraine, Ukrainians in the Carolinas, Ukrainians in the Connecticut, Ukrainians in California. So, the, so each state kind of had um, uh, not each state, but states where there was a large uh, presence of Ukrainians um, uh, created some sort of an organization to respond to the needs of 2014 with with the military aggression in Ukraine. What's interesting about those groups that some of them became permanent, but a lot of them um, dissipated. They uh, you know, they were effective in the provision of, uh, of aid or in the provision of hum- humanitarian aid, uh, fundraising, um, raising public awareness, engaging with policymakers, uh, but not many of them are not around anymore. Uh, and that was again sort of a unique feature of um, diaspora and conflict: how sometimes these groups, um, you know, appear and disappear. Now, more permanent groups, um, tradi- traditional diaspora groups. As listed on the slide, UNA, UNIS, and, and UCCA. Um, now they engaged with the younger diaspora, but it was interesting. It was an in- interesting relationship because uh, while uh, both groups uh, had similar objectives in terms of advocating for Ukraine and its territorial sovereignty, they also pursued, um, you know, slightly different, uh, larger goals. Because the 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 overarching goal of of more permanent diaspora groups is also self-preservation, um, and um, kind of preservation of cultural values and, and relationships that they had built uh, in the area and, and elsewhere. Well, whereas the ad hoc groups that were created in response to the aggression uh, were um, a lot more, um, uh, I guess, adventurous and, and took a lot more risks in terms of um, trying new things or engaging with new actors um, and, and, and um, in, you know, engaging with the media. So uh, they, um, they were risk takers Um, of of a different kind, Um, and sometimes that that created tension um, in the the network itself in terms of how exactly to uh, achieve those objectives uh, without, you know, ruining relationships uh, or um, moderating risks as they were perceived. Um, what's, what's interesting about that dynamic was that um, what I found to be true in my study as well, and, and the quote that I provided here um, is from Armand and Jemison's studies, that the more successful a movement is in spreading its knowledge uh, knowledge interests or diffusing its consciousness, the less successful it is likely to be as a permanent organization. And I found it true um, in this um, network of Ukrainian advocates is that there's, there are a lot of very successful groups in the beginning, Uh, that pushed for um, uh, legislative acts passed by Congress that I mentioned before, uh, but then they disappeared. Um, So it was kind of short-term energy that was effective, um, but not necessarily enduring. Um, So in in that relationship, too, um, what I found is that there is a convergence and divergence of interests. So as the Ukrainian advocates engaged with uh, U.S. policymakers um, I, there, there are two f- sort of fundamental approaches there. One is the essentialist approach, and the other one is the constructivist approach. Um, uh, the uh, Ukrainian advocates sort of demonstrated a more essentialist approach in that um, you know, they had predetermined goals pertaining to u- Ukraine interest or the United States interest uh, in Ukraine uh, as, uh, as a function of its engagement with Russia. Um, And in in that dynamic, the relationship was based on finding overlapping interests. So Ukrainian advocates uh, sort of already had certain ideas in mind as to what – how to help Ukraine and what the United States had to do. Um, Now, on the part of of U.S. policymakers, as was reported to me by my participants, um, there were no um, – there was less – this commitment as far as how exactly to uh, respond to the to the crisis in Ukraine, to, uh, to military aggression in Ukraine, because they were also looking to um, to navigate that space for political gain um, and and sort of figure out how to also um, uh, use this opportunity to engage with an organized ethnic group. Um, as a constituency that could be potentially politically uh, beneficial um, for their own purposes. So there was no uh, – there was lack of commitment on the, on the part of, of U.S. policymakers. Um, but in that, as, as the two approaches uh, converged, um, the, the effort then became in finding those overlapping areas where um, Ukrainian advocates could be effective in promoting what they considered, you know, the uh, Ukrainian interest um, in 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 the United States. Now, um, I want to emphasize that uh, what made that advocacy effort effective, and the Ukrainian advocates have been very successful um, in in the last. Uh, five to six years um, is because they were able to find um, that overlapping interest among three different constituents or actors. Congress members organized interests that they represented and uh, executive agencies. And that's sort of uh, what came out of my study, too, um, is, um, is to show that um, when it's, – it's only when those three actors find overlapping interests that uh, political advocacy is successful. Um, given the nature of of American politics. It's also important to, um, to emphasize for me that because Ukrainian advocates are not a formal lobby, Um, and a lot of these organizations are grassroots uh, movements. Um, You know, they are obviously uh, volunteer-based. That sort of was um, a blessing in disguise because, well, first of all, they were untainted by any corporate interests or oligarchic interests, Um, and so there was no perception on the part of, as they engaged with U.S. policymakers, um, there is no perception on their part that they may be representing you know, Ukrainian oligarchs because it's not the case. Um, now, Ukrainian oligarchs individually have lobbyists in D.C., uh, but not as a country. Ukraine as a country does not necessarily have the same um, uh, channels of engagement as some of the other countries. Um, you know, you know, Israel obviously comes to mind, uh, even Cuba. Uh, but what the advantage that it created for Ukraine, Ukraine's advocates um, is that they were actually, in engaging with American policymakers, um, they presented themselves as Americans first. Uh, they were not lobbying or advocating for Ukraine, per se, as a nation state. Uh, they were advocating for Ukraine as American Ukrainians, with American interests in mind first. Um, Again, for me, it's – as my participants emphasized to me, and one of the major themes that uh, stemmed from my study is that uh, this perception of advocating for Ukraine and who is to say um, what's in the interest of of Ukraine and and how to sort of calibrate uh, those lobbying and advocacy efforts to where, um, you know, American Ukrainians here in the U.S. are actually – Uh, contributing to the resolution of of the war and the conflict, not um, intensification um, of of whatever tension exists in the homeland, Um, was exactly that they presented themselves as it is best for the United States, um, and it's best for American foreign policy to support Ukrainian territorial integrity, to support Ukraine militarily, diplomatically, and politically, uh, to help it fight uh, the Russian aggression. Um, and again, because the United States benefits from it um, first and foremost, um, and, and, and again, that sort of served to, uh, to um, debunk any myths that, are, that exist out there that you know, ethnic diaspora um, may be promoting a certain political agenda uh, that is specific to, to the homeland country. All right. Um, another sort of two main themes that I'm going to emphasize in the interest of time, um, as I'm being reminded, is is that one way in which the Ukrainian advocates um, in the U.S. have been able to maintain agency is through persistent, consistent, and dedicated effort. And I want to quote from um, one of the participants who said lobbying or advocacy is like Chinese water torture. There's no silver bullet. There's no one thing that you can do to advance your cause. I don't care which cause it is because I've been doing this all my life. The reason I call it Chinese water torture because it's drop by drop but it's consistent and that drop by drop eventually breaks the stone. Uh, So many of, of, of these groups that I have talked to have been advocating for Ukraine their entire lives. You know, They were raised in communities where um, you know, memories of uh, the Soviet or Nazis and Soviet occupation were so vivid, and, and it was um, you know they were cultivated in this uh, environment of uh, fighting for continuing the fight for Ukraine's independence. That the events of 2014 changed little for them. Um, you know, they again the actua- the, the network mobilized itself w- were reactivated, um, but it has always been active uh, among certain diaspora groups, and the, the second. Um, area that I want to, to emphasize that came out of my research again is, is uh, salience of ethnic communities. Um, but first, so here's just some of the examples that I was given as far as how exactly um, uh, the, the diaspora or Ukraine's advocates engaged with US policymakers. Um, You know, some of these are uh, obviously sort of common sense, common common methods, Uh, but I wanted to – I included the quote from one of the participants to emphasize that sometimes uh, the lack of experts in the administration itself provided opportunities for Ukrainian – for American Ukrainians to step in and actually join the administration or congressional staff as experts on Ukraine uh, because there was um, sort of a lack of expertise. As one of the participants, a very young uh, participants told me, I started working as an unpaid intern. Uh, no one in the office, even amongst the foreign policy professionals, had ever been to the region, spoke Russian or any Ukrainian, or, or knew the history or anything like that. I had the knowledge. There was supply. There was demand. And I became staff. Um, so there's a lot of stories like that uh, that allowed, um, again, American Ukrainians to uh, to be effective, engaging with U.S. policymakers, and the last, um, um, I would I would say, um, unique characteristic of the Ukrainian diaspora or Ukrainian advocacy uh, network um, was that they actually uh, mobilized joint efforts with other post-Soviet diasporas here in the U.S. and and some of them we have represented in this room, um, and what allowed them to be effective is. Um, by regionalizing the, the term – what I called the regionalization of identity for collective action. Um, it, it's only in, in the union with um, other post-Soviet diasporas and advocacy groups that Ukrainians were able to mobilize substantial support um, in making sure that the United States um, is consistent in, in, in uh, sanctioning Russia and, and in, in its support of Ukraine. Um, which I thought was, was very interesting because, again, those relationships were sort of there, but they were reactivated um, in, in 2014, 2015 as the need arose. Um, and just on the final note, um, the re- recommendations that were um, – that came out of my interviews in terms of how uh, you know, ethnic community groups can be more effective in, in engaging uh, U.S. foreign policymakers is, first of all, for u- in Ukraine in particular. Um, you know, pretty much all my all of my participants said that um, you know Ukraine really is lacking a um, uh, is, is could be more effective if it had a formal lobby um, uh, that would uh, lobby on behalf of national interest of Ukraine, not individual interest of Ukrainian oligarchs. Um, you know, paid positions, obviously, with advocacy organizations could also be helpful. Um, And and more importantly, uh, coordination, improved coordination and cooperation among the the diversity of groups um, uh, that have similar objectives but have different means of getting there. Um, And and lastly, uh, more um, cooperation with other ethnic diasporas that have similar post-Soviet legacy has also proven to be most effective. Um, So those were the recommendations given to me. And and with that, thank you for your attention. I'll turn it over to Aram.
2: Okay, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Will, for this invitation. Uh, it's a special pleasure to be here at the at the Woodrow Wilson Center on what is the the centennial of, uh, of U.S. army relations, which were established under President Woodrow Wilson. In fact, I think it's uh, on April 23rd of this year that will mark the 100th anniversary of President Wilson's Secretary of State Bainbridge Colby writing to Karakhan Pastor Majan, the 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 first U.S.-Armenian ambassador in the U.S., uh, recognizing, formally recognizing Armenia as an independent republic back in 1920. So it's a super treat to be here on this special occasion on the, in, in this year. Uh, that's number one. Number two. Uh, I pass through Union Station quite a bit. Some of you may as well. And you may not notice in Union Station that there is a, uh, a statue tucked away. They've moved it a couple times over the years, but it used to be near the Starbucks. Now they moved it near the staircase. But it's a statue of... Uh, uh, Philip Randolph. A. Philip Randolph. Anyone familiar? Ambassador Murray is familiar. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, great organizer, part of the civil rights movement. Not heralded as much as he should be, but really a great organizer. And, and he um, has a quote that I stop and read and usually photograph every time I go through Union Station. Uh, I'll read it here, and I'll start. Uh, he wrote, at the banquet table of nature, there are no reserve seats. You get what you can take, and you keep what you can hold. If you can't take anything you won't get anything. And if you can't hold anything, you won't keep anything. And you can't take anything without organization. A lot of wisdom packed in that one paragraph. Read it. If you're in this business, read it 10 times, read it every morning maybe. A really, really important idea. Uh, And now I'll jump right into my presentation on the Armenian American community. I was going to start with a quick review if i can keep it to maybe three four minutes of 120 years of armenian american advocacy that's the first piece the second is what are the three main ingredients at least of armenian american advocacy but i think you could project it out to pretty much any group like ours that's trying to make change here in the u.s and then just wrap up with a a couple of final thoughts about the particular issues that we work on so let me start at the start armenians have been advocating in america pretty much as long as there have been Armenians in America. So Armenians started showing up in any meaningful numbers um, in the 1890s. 1890s were a difficult time in the Armenian homeland. There were massacres under the under Sultan Abdul Hamid, and Armenians um, heard terrible stories. The ones that were in the U.S. heard terrible stories about, about the atrocities back home, and they wanted to do something about it. But they were a new community. Their English skills were, were, you know, barely existent. Didn't have very good jobs. Very little education. Really weren't wired into the system at all. So yet they had a a high Armenian identity, right? They're just literally recent, fresh immigrants, but their ability to influence the society or the policy of that society was relatively low. So the the strategy they chose, and this is like every group, you pick the strategy that works for you, right? The strategy they chose was one of um, fostering the compassion, sort of uh, sparking the conscience of the United States. And the United States did step up under people later like Woodrow Wilson and, and others, they set up the Near East Relief Foundation, which was the, one of the first humanitarian efforts by the United States around the world. If the Spanish American War kind of was our emergence as a global military power, the effort in the Near East to help Armenians and others was very much the first uh, humanitarian entree of the United States onto the world stage. So uh, we saw a tremendous amount of support from the U.S. based on that compassion in the form of orphanages, medicine, food, tents, all those things that you can imagine. My own grandmother. Uh, survived because of uh, U.S. funded orphanage uh, that saved literally tens of thousands of kids uh, in, the, in the genocide era, right? But we took—I mean—that we, we were deeply appreciated for that that help, but took an important lesson from it, right? Which is compassion will get you so far; it will save lives, it will provide the tents and the medicine, the, the other stuff for people to get them out of their crisis into the next stage of their lives. But it doesn't deliver policy, right? So. US policy, if you read the, the, the literature of the era, there was a lot of compassion for the Armenians. There were endless debates in the Senate, there were speeches, there were banquets, all this stuff about how we must stand by our little ally, the Armenians, and they did in a humanitarian sense, but the policy was, uh, was not changed. And ultimately, um, the, the Russians got their act together under the Bolsheviks, the, the Turks got their act together under Kemal Ataturk, and they, they partitioned Armenia, and the US nearly just washed its hands of the whole thing. So we appreciate the compassion, but understand its limits. Uh, The next era for us was, um, I guess, I'll call it the Cold War, but you you can even take it back to the 30s, sort of this east-west divide. And Armenia, right, the the, the western part of Armenia emptied of Armenians, the eastern part of Armenia now under the Soviet Union, right? So the the, the politics of the Armenian world in those years, let's say the 20s right up until the 80s, was something like Armenians are on different sides of different empires, right? And they're basically uh, fighting among each other as surrogates for these great powers, right? It's not new for Armenians. Armenians have very often been you know, astride empires going back you know, 3,000 years. So, uh, and I, I would say that um, it's good to stand on principle. It's, it's good to, to fight for what's right. I mean, Armenians in America, by and large, fought for the freedom of Armenia. We treated Armenia like a, a captive nation. We, we fought for liberty. We preserved uh, the flag of an independent Armenia, the seal of an Armenia, of Armenia, the, the the national anthem, and that's very, very important stuff. But there were Armenians on the other side who felt that the Soviets were, um, you know, better than the Turks, I guess, right? Or that they, they provided some refuge for a country that otherwise would have been destroyed. And there were debates and stuff, but the debates were essentially um, Armenians fighting uh, a larger war, and frankly, a larger war that they weren't going to affect the outcome. They weren't going to affect the outcome. the 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 East or the West was going to prevail, and in the end. Uh, well, it's important to take sides, and I, I think even at the tactical level, you want Armenians to be Democrats, or Republicans, you want Armenians all over the spectrum, but ultimately recognize when the fight is your fight and recognize when the fight is someone else's fight, and if there's, gonna, if there's great discord created uh, by external fights, maybe you can take a pass on them. I think that's a lesson we learned from that very, very long experience of um, a, a global division that led to Armenian divisions, which led essentially to us not advocating outward, but rather advocating against each other. That's an important lesson from that experience. Try to avoid that where you can. Um, A third era was in the 60s when um, the Armenian genocide took on a sort of greater currency in the U.S. for a variety of reasons. And uh, the Armenians, the the first sort of expression of that was by younger Armenians. The older Armenians were by and large traumatized by the genocide. And literally for half a century, you, you really didn't hear Armenians talk anywhere outside of a church or a family setting about the Armenian genocide. But in the '60s. The kids of survivors started talking about it, taking it into the civic arena, and, and very often through protests. So uh, I was born in 66. My first memories are in a stroller at some protest, you know, and that's very, very common for Armenians. So protests in Boston, protests in you know LA, New York, all these things. Uh, and it's good. A protest will get attention of the people you're protesting against, and, and third parties. Plus it also inspires your team, right? You get the blood moving. Uh, but ultimately, we learned a lesson there as well, which is that there are serious limits to what you can accomplish through protest, right? You, you know, yell and shout and hold signs, but the, the party you're seeking to influence is really not very much influenced by your protest, right? So you learn from that, and you say, okay, what can we do? And we, we evolved into, like, a, I'll use lobbying. I mean, I'm a registered lobbyist. So I can just, you know, unapologetic lobbyist. and uh, 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 Just lobbying, pressure, the tactics of pressure, um, uh, like the, the standard stuff working on campaigns, donating to campaigns, working the media, working coalitions, all the stuff of, of politics. It's really nothing that an ethnic group would do is very different than what almost any other group would do that's trying to make a change. So we got into the world of, into the world of pressure politics and all that stuff, legis- moving legislation, work, getting involved in elections, things of that sort, and that's served us well. I think that over the last you know, 20, 30 years, the Armenian American community has, has making some good progress, we've delivered some decent results, and that's been the result of that. But we've also realized, and this is the last stage we've come to, the limits of pressure and the limits of lobbying. Lobbying is essentially, you know, knocking on a door, going inside, and making your case. And that's important. And sometimes you can make your case. And sometimes the incremental, um, sort of aggregate value of those water drops is good. Uh, But there's another way to make influence, and that's uh, within the system itself, right? By participation, right? The, People who decide, that, who, people who make decisions in America are Americans, and they come from all different places and all different backgrounds and all different educations and, and, and geographic parts of the country. And we just like to see Armenian-Americans be you know, fairly, equally, proportionally represented among the decision-makers in, uh, in DC or wherever decisions are being made. So that doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen you know, naturally or organically. So what we've done is we've ha- developed programs that help young Armenians come to Washington, DC. We them free housing, free training, Free networking, free introductions. Do everything we possibly can to help them take that first step from you know their first degree into their first job on the Hill or an agency, think tank, association, newspaper, things of that sort. So that Armenian Americans become part of the fabric of the city, just you know as they're entitled to as citizens. So those are the various steps we've taken. We kind of did the compassion thing, kind of aligned ourselves with different interests, um, protested, pressured, and then are working to participate in the system. That's. Kind of like our short history. I hope I didn't overdo my time on that. Okay, okay. Um, Three ingredients that I think are really important to uh, effective civic advocacy, especially for an ethnic group. Uh, First, is a community that cares. Uh, Now, if you're an advocacy group, you have almost nothing to do with that. By the time somebody gets on the radar screen of an advocacy group, they're 16, 17, 18 years old, and whether or not they're going to deeply care about an issue, if it's in their DNA, if it's been in their upbringing, in their family, their church, their youth groups, that's been done before you see them. But that's essential, right? The idea that an advocacy group can take a constituency and start talking to them as adults and compete with them effectively against all the distractions of American society, that's a tall order. if you have a, a situation where kids have been reigned in a Ukrainian home or a, a Lithuanian home or a home where these issues are important and they go to a church that reinforces that, they have peers who care about these issues as well, then you have a lot to work with. That depth of commitment is the heart of everything. It's not a, not a product of lobbying, but it's the, the prerequisite of, of lobbying. So very, very important uh, point. Second, that devotion should um, take the form of ownership. right? The, uh, anybody in the Armenian-American community, we would hope, feels ownership of the Armenian cause. They, I, our hope is that they would never think that they could outsource the, our, our hopes or aspirations. For an Armenian-American to, to think something like, this is really important to me, I, drew, I sure as heck wish somebody would do that. That's like a very unhealthy thing. Or even worse, I wish that others, essentially meaning non-Armenians, you know, would care about our issues and do these things. It's like, well, that's like you're in fantasy world. You, It's just not how things work. It's simply not how things work. The, the core element here is, uh, someone who cares about the issue, likely because of how they were raised, and then uh, takes ownership of it and says, I'm going to get this done on my shoulders, on my time. My, this, is, this, this is what I will do. Uh, second, so they care. Second, got to know what to do. That's not always easy, but you can teach people what to do. There's a whole range of things. What are your strategies? What are your tactics? How carefully do you define your asks? Super essential question how you take all your hopes and aspirations, all the diversity of your community, all the different currents that flow through um, your, you know, the life of organizations and stuff, and distill it down to maybe one or two single sentence questions that you can put before the American political community or policy community. Defining your ask, distilling your ask, very, very essential. Defining it as a, um, in a bipartisan way, super essential, very important to signal DC, the city itself, the policymakers here, and your community that you will carry no one's water but your own, that you're not here, your loyalties rest with your community and your aspirations as citizens of the United States and you're bringing, you're redressing your government for your grievances, right? Not carrying water for the Democrats, Republicans, for this regime back home or that political party back home. You are in it for your stated purpose People will smell, people will sense very quickly if that's not the case. If you carry water for one party to the other, you'll get adherence of one party or the other, but you'll, 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 ultimately you'll get it wrong. We passed a resolution this year in the U.S. House, uh, 405 to 11. It took us a long, long time, but we never took sides. And in the end, when we won that vote, it was 405 to 11 because we never took sides. And that's really, really important. Uh, other things to keep in mind are um, your voice, right? The voice is American citizens, as entitled as any other citizen. You know, folks come and say, you know, where do your loyalties lie? My loyalties lie with me. I think I'm as much a citizen as you. I mean, is it, do you have reason to think otherwise, right? Do we not pay our taxes? Do we not fight in America's wars? So this idea of, like, what is your voice? The voice of citizenship. Um, another thing, and this speaks to the Ukrainian example and the Armenian example and many other examples, I think of the Cuban example, is are you swimming upstream or downstream in terms of U.S. policy? Um, if you're swimming downstream or the wind is at your back, Things get a little easier. Very often, in our experience, we've been swimming upstream. NATO, oil, defense, we've had, um, we have not had the wind, the wind at our back, and that it makes your work tougher, but it makes you stronger. Uh, so that's the second ingredient, knowing what to do. It's not natural, but you, it can be taught. The third, and the hardest thing, the hardest thing, is um, having a community that believes that doing something matters. Uh, There are a lot of places in the world, including the former Soviet Union, including the Middle East, where it's not natural for citizens to think that if I get engaged and stick my neck out and take risks, and I work in concert with others toward collective aims, it's going to give me the result I want. In fact, in a lot of parts of the world, for a great period of human history, doing exactly that was like a recipe for disaster. You don't tell the czar what to do. You don't tell the shah what to do. You don't tell the sultan what to do. You can organize around that, but it's going to be suicidal. Why don't you just learn a skill? keep your head down, and count on your family. That's, that's a survival strategy that's very common for many groups that arrive in the U.S., and they bring that culture with them. But the thing is, that may have been exactly the right culture to survive in 14th century Ottoman Empire, but exactly the wrong strategy to get things done here. Right? It's, uh, you know, keeping your head down and staying quiet is a recipe for being ignored, not for getting things done. Uh, so a community that believes that that um, actions deliver results is essential. That, that, is, that faith is maybe the Intangible, but essential ingredient of civic advocacy for ethnic groups. And uh, I'll add to that, if an ethnic group finds itself in a situation where the group is trying to demand activism from its community, it's going to be a very tough road. If, if on the other hand, you have a community that demands actions of its leaders, then you have a healthy situation, right? If I have to go out to communities and beg people to do stuff that they are not inclined to do, it'll be a failure. I'm not telling kids to eat their veggies. It just simply will not work right? But if you have a community, as I said, that has that motivation inside, when you show up and talk to them, they will grill you and say, what the heck are you doing? You better get the job done. If you can't do it, somebody else will. We demand results. Then you know you're in a healthy situation. It's not about, and this happens a lot with ethnic groups, people think, well, we'll hire so-and-so and they'll fix it for us. It's like, that is first a waste of money. Second, it'll never happen. Third, you're telling your community that you don't need to own it. And all those recipes for disaster. So, um, that's a bottom up leadership. Those are the three ingredients community that cares, community that knows what to do, community that um, believes that they can get the job done. I'll wrap up with just uh, our agenda um, ballpark, you know, strengthening U.S. Armenian relations. That's a big project. Um, working on the Nagorno Karabakh, what we call Artsakh conflict, uh, trying to develop a, bring America's contribution to a durable democratic resolution of that conflict. And finally, justice for the Armenian genocide. We saw House and Senate votes last fall on that. We hope to see the president do the right thing uh, as early as this April. Uh, These things are tough. You know, they're tough issues. Um, uh, You're trying to align, as as was discussed, uh, you know, what your asks are with uh, the sense of national interests um, of the people you're trying to convince with their sense of what's morally right and also with their political aspirations and interests, right? Because this is a democracy, right? People have political ambitions and, and aspirations. They're not It's not a sin. That's a good thing, right? They should have political ambition, and part of that ambition should be uh, getting a majority of votes, and getting a majority of votes means talking to people and supporting the issues that they care about. Now, it gets a little tough because, especially in foreign affairs, and I'll wrap up with this because otherwise I, there's, there's no limit to how long I'll go. And uh, so uh, I'll say it this way. When you're an ethnic group and you're dealing with... Um, foreign affairs. It's easy to fall into the trap or be trapped by the idea that you are a parochial interest that cares just about yourself and not the greater good and here are our diplomats and they're well trained, well educated and they are um, uh, and that foreign affairs is in fact a province right? that is rightfully insulated from the democratic um, impulses of American life to some extent. I would argue that much more so and let's say education policy, citizens feel like totally entitled to hammer their teachers and administrators about their kids' education. Healthcare, right? You know, people will talk about their health plans forever, right? And they feel total, totally entitled to do the healthcare talk or any pick the issue. On foreign affairs, it's a bit different. There's a, kind of a still an, a vestigial aristocratic feel to uh, diplomacy, where um, it's the, 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 the Joe citizen is considered like a, a bit of an intruder when he shows up at the door of the State Department or whoever, NSC, and starts saying, well, this is what I think is right. Now, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, there are general conceptions of what national interest is in every country. Uh, We happen to be a democracy, and who can set our national interests? Who can define that? Well, I'm sure there are very smart people who think they're entitled to, but ultimately, it's got to be the people, and it's got to be the people through their government, and it's got to be people who raise their voice and advocate and push for change and whether like, take the issue of apartheid, right? You might have had a very strong case. People could have made a very strong case in the 1960s or 70s, even in the 80s, saying here's why South Africa is so important. It has a sea lane, diamond, uranium, gold. It is anti-communist; fought the communists in Angola, right? All these things. Maybe, you know, we need to back that regime despite the inequities of its racist apartheid system, right? A national security argument could be made. I'm sure, uh, in fact, it was made right, for the for, um, South African apartheid system, or at least turning a blind eye or not, not challenging it the way that we eventually did, right? Uh, that's the nat- that could be a national security argument. And another argument would be something like, you know, America's place in this world, our, our power ultimately rests upon uh, the perception of us as a beacon of something, something, a little bit better than just, you know, beating the next guy, right? And that started in universities, went to states, got in Congress, eventually the president of the United States, I think it was late Reagan, early Bush, I forget exactly. Uh, but the, the policy shifted, right? We started imposing uh, sanctions and restrictions on trade and, and, and all these sorts of things. And uh, you, that's a case where a, a democratic impulse didn't start in Washington, right, but it ended up in Washington, helped bring about a change in U.S. foreign policy in a way that I think better aligned U.S. foreign policy with our values as a country. So it's a fluid process. So sometimes these things get thrown out at us as like a, you know, it's a, like a, um, a shut-up card, you know, like, you know, I think, for example, I think Americans shouldn't lie about genocide. Hey, you know, that's my view. And then someone will throw out the national security card and say, well, you got you to shut up because that is wrong for, you know, here's 18 reasons why it's going to be uh, difficult. It's like, well, I don't care. That's, that's wrong, and I'm going to push it. And, and if you're successful and you're effective, uh, you win. Well, thanks so much to
0: both of our speakers. Uh, I want to ask the first question, I, and it gets to this question of lobbying and what is the role of lobbying in, in, in D.C. Uh, Elena talked about how these groups were specifically not lobbyists, and Aram is admittedly a, uh, a, a, a lobbyist and, and, and says so up front. So to what extent do, does lobbying the U.S. government work, and to what extent is it better to kind of try to maintain a non-lobbying but advocacy role? Or is it better to actually say out front that you are a lobbyist, and what are the consequences of that?
2: So yeah, I mean, a lot of different models can work. I mean, there's no particularly, like, there's no golden model. Um, But I would say that um, you you wanna rest your case on a number of of foundations. And one of them is, here's why we're doing, here's what we're doing is, is good for American interests. As currently defined, here's what we're doing is um, morally right. Here's what we're doing is politically advantageous to the, the political person or party or group that you're talking to, and you want to make those arguments and you want to have the, the your persuasive element. But you also want to if you have if you have pressure, if you can bring pressure to bear. If there are districts in the country where the Ukrainian community can help make a difference in who might get elected, I would I think there are a couple of states where that are, might be swing states that the Ukrainian community could uh, help determine the outcome of the next presidential election. And if the politicians think that they have it locked up, then they don't have to pay attention, but if they worry about maybe 10,000 votes here or there, then maybe they should you know, knock on the door of the Ukrainian community and say, hey, what's it gonna take? You know, how can we talk, what can we do? So I think uh, it's to rely simply on the notion of, you know, we're just gonna sit down and talk to people, we're just educators, we're not really, we're not, we don't push. It's like the second anyone knows you don't push, then you know, it's like the conversation is over. You, like you will talk, talk. You can be brilliant. You can, have a, the, you can be like Moses. You be, you know, Jesus Christ himself could walk into a room, and even those powers would not prevail because the second you leave, they're like, okay, fine, they're gone, and they move on with their lives. So the so I'll, I'll give an example. Just yesterday, uh, uh, a senator sent a letter out, a mistaken letter to Armenian American constituents who had written to him about an Armenian subject. Wrong letter got sent out. In fact, just the opposite letter, right? And um, you know, we shared that letter with our community and. I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands of calls went into that center, and I'm not joking. Around 11 o'clock at night, we got phone calls saying, "Okay, here's the pro- here. We understand the problem. Here's the fix. Here's what we'll do," and it was fixed by midnight last night, right? First, getting a call from the Senate office at midnight is, says something. And second, I'm glad that it was resolved before today because I don't have to worry about it this morning. But that was not because we have a persuasive case to make or we're, like, brilliant or moral or anything like that. It's because there's a bunch of, bunch of Armenian American voters who are sensitive to these issues and, and raise their voices. So that, in that sense, lobbying, I think, is very lobbying pressure, not just being the persuasive voice who's trying to convince, you know, if you're just a petitioner, then good luck. Good luck. We're citizens. We have much more. We're much more than petitioners. Um,
1: I would agree with Aram um, as far as uh, that's actually one of the strengths of, of grassroots movements and um, in, in, you know, in, in my case, the Ukrainian diaspora is exactly that they don't represent a formal paid lobby. Uh, I think there's two reasons for that. Uh, one is that Um, Given the toxic environment uh, that we're in right now with with regard to Ukrainian oligarchs and and various corruption allegations and things of that nature, um, anything U.S. politicians can do to stay away from uh, any connection to a paid um, Ukrainian um, group or uh, or a former lobbyist, because, again, um, involvement or connection to any of those individuals um, are extremely consequential. Um, and in the current context, very toxic. So I think that it really does present an advantage uh, to engage with the Ukrainian community um, in a sort of a more of a grassroots movements way uh, because uh, they don't necessarily represent that, they don't reflect the toxicity that sometimes oligarchic money may come with. Um, and it's really hard to disconnect or change people's perception that that, that money is, is clean. Because you know there's there's this fine line between uh, at what point you can encounter dirty money in in, uh, in the case of formal lobbying, um, and the second reason is that um, Ukrainian communities represent you know single issue constituencies uh, for uh, U.S. representatives, uh, so they're easily mobilizable and, and activated. So they are uh, they're, it's, it's a two way you know street right? It's it's mutually beneficial relationship that way. Uh, because these are communities that care so deeply and so honestly and so genuinely about uh, one specific issue—in this case, helping uh, Ukrainian uh, people uh, first and foremost—and um, and fighting the Russian aggression. That um, for U.S. policymakers, it's, it's, it's an easy group to, to engage with uh, for uh, to, to activate them for their own sort of. Uh, political benefit in advancing um, in you know, getting reelected or um, uh, getting their support for certain political uh, legislative proposals. Um, so I, I think that, again, uh, as much as resources are scarce um, in, in some of these advocacy efforts, uh, I think that um, the fact that they're advocates and not lobbyists presents a lot of advantages as well.
0: Okay. Well, we're going to open the floor to questions. Um, just a few uh, caveats, because all these are are very difficult issues. I want to make sure that we focus on the questions at hand, and so that we focus on on uh, uh, influence on U.S. foreign policy and not get dragged into other larger debates. Uh, prefer that you focus on a question. Uh, no speeches. I know people will have comments on these issues, uh, but then we can focus on the discussion, which is really how uh uh ethnic interest groups influence US foreign policy, that's what the questions that are at our hand. So with that issue, we're gonna begin right here. Thank you very much. We're gonna have a microphone. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your interesting presentations. I'd like to
3: hear more, if anything, <coughs> about the roles of your embassies in, in these dynamics. Thank you.
0: Okay.
2: Okay. Uh I was at the Armenian embassy yesterday for Armenian Army Day. It was a celebration of uh, the anniversary of the creation of the Armenian Army, and um, we talk to the embassy all the time, uh, but operate on very, very different uh, channels. The embassy represents the Republic of Armenia and is a diplomatic, you know, representation. Uh, We're U.S. citizens, you know, exercising our rights under uh, our Constitution. Uh, it's going to be an awful lot that Armenians are going to care about, regardless of their citizenship, but in terms of like day-to-day action and, and priorities and agendas they're they're different i mean armenia has um, its priorities and very, when we share a great many of them but there's separate tracks separate governance separate decision making um like on the nagorno-karabakh issue, issue i mean I, th- I think we see very much eye to eye there was a time about 11 years ago when armenia signed an accord with turkey that we felt was ill-advised right and i'm sure the armenian government would have loved for us to cheerlead that but we thought it was a terrible idea and we we, we we spoke out against it. And that'll happen from time to time. So different tracks, and uh, by and large agreement, um, but a different governance. And once in a while, you know, these issues pop up. But that's, you deal with them. You know.
1: um, what I have found in my study, and I'm only gonna be referring to what I was told by my participants, um, you know, even though, obviously I'm, I'm Ukrainian myself, uh, Ukrainian-American, and. And I have my own experience, but again, I, I want to uh, keep the reference frame very clear—that this is what my participants told me. Um, so, from from their experience, uh, the Ukrainian embassy could be doing more um, uh, by way of coordinating with all these various groups. I think that the the, uh, the Ukrainian embassy, uh, you know, is, is doing a great job, but they're limited in their resources and they're also limited in um, in um, experience in in. Uh, quick reaction, so they're, they're slow in their processes, given that, as any bureaucracy, right, they're limited in how quickly they can respond, You know, messages need to be checked, um, and things of that nature. Um, but overall, the impression that I got from my interviews is that uh, there sometimes there is a lack of coordination among um, various advocacy groups and formal repre- representation, um, and that's one of the areas that could be improved Um, is for formal embassies to coordinate more actively and more openly and transparently uh, with other advocates for Ukraine's national interest um, uh, to ensure maximum effect.
4: Right here. (coughs) Hello. Uh, My name is Tom Dying, and I ran APAC for 13 years. Aram, you were brilliant today. And I very much appreciated your points, Elena. I've got some problems with you—not <laughs> with you, you. <laughs> <but> <laughs> you. Take, take the recommendations on the board. Professional paid lobby for the Ukrainian government—that makes you a foreign agent. And you do exactly the opposite of an Aram So forthrightly put out, it has to be a citizen's lobby, otherwise why don't you just go, to, if you're Senator X or Congressman Y, just go to the embassy, or take a trip to the, and talk to the people in the national capital uh, of Kiev. Uh, so, <coughs> I very much am worried about that sentence. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you're, I, I was sorry, I was late and I didn't hear the introductions, I don't think you're a paid lobbyist. Otherwise, you're a foreign agent. So, uh, a paid lobbyist for the government of Ukraine. So, it has to be a citizen's effort. Now, I have a question. <laughs> What's the role of money by your citizens in furthering the national interest? Okay. I'll let you
1: start. Yeah, thank you so much yeah. for that um, comment and question. Um, well, first of all, again, I want to emphasize that these are not my recommendations. These are recommendations that were given to me by my participants, by uh, advocates that I interviewed. I'm simply reporting what they had told me. Um, I've summarized information given to me um, from interviews that I collected. Um, And and so the other thing that I wanna add some context to that is not, you know, I I, I can see how it can be misconstrued. Hold on, let me, let
0: me. Let me finish. Excuse me, Let right. Co-
1: Coordinating um, meaning information exchange, right? When events are happening, uh, for example, when that the embassy may not know of certain groups organizing certain events, so it's more informational support and, and logistical support, not coordination for political purposes. There is no political agenda, per se. Uh, but as far as that particular recommendation that came from my interviews, it's not instead of Grassroots movements. It's not instead of citizenship movements. It's uh, to complement, right? Uh, you know. It, again, it, these were perceptions of of uh, advocates that actually operate on the ground. Um, they um, looked at compared the case of Ukraine with other um, former lobbyists uh, who actually appear to be more effective given the resources that they have. And the impression that they walked away with is that Ukraine could benefit from complementing these advocacy efforts with a more sort of formal representation. Again, that came from my participants, I'm simply reporting what what they had said, Um, but the context there is that it's another avenue, it's another instrument, not instead of um, the the grassroots movements that we all support here and and the participants obviously being active in that uh, network. Um, recognize the value because they're actually you know, committing almost full time uh, to doing what they're doing voluntarily. So I hope I, I answered your question. I again, I'm 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 not uh, in the position to discuss the uh, sort of uh, the ramifications of political coordination and ho- uh, how it can, it can be misconstrued. Um, I'm, I'm simply reporting additional um, avenues to consider to maximize effect. Yeah.
2: In terms of money um, and. Tom, you wouldn't know this, I think, as well as anybody in this city. Uh, you have your, your staff and your programs and your projects, your short-term projects, long-term projects. You try to maybe endow some funds for the longer-term educational programs, and you got your annual budget to keep your staff moving and your programs going. So that you need. is like a, a baseline uh, operating budget that you need and s- some something else for education that's longer-term. And that's number one. Number two is the campaign contributions. You know they matter they matter there's a reason people give campaign contributions you know one of those reasons is that they're good hearted people and they just support people and they want to you know give their applause in the form of a check and that's wonderful uh, but if you were to study if you were to study um, lobbying or advocacy in DC uh, and you were to pull every FEC file uh, of every donation um, by somebody in a particular industry or group and then look at the people they give to and then study how they act on those issues you might find a correlation uh, between uh, the, the, the people giving the money and the people getting the money. You might, you might find some pretty serious correlations. That could be people just, the poli- they just give to the people who do the stuff they already like, and, 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 and also because politicians sometimes you know, look, maybe people who give the money get on their radar screen in ways that, that people who don't give money don't. So, uh, so yes, campaign contributions are, play an important role. You know, as long as our campaign finance laws are the way they are, then campaign contributions are important. And um, an ethnic group, uh, you know, obviously has many demands on the resources of its community, right, centers and churches and these things, schools, uh, but part of the message of a community group like ours would be to tell our community, you know, if you like what your, your, your elected officials are doing, then send them a check, you know, make an online donation, you know, uh, lend them a hand, maybe when you send that check and add a little note saying how much you appreciate their help on Armenian issues. Um, so, yeah, campaign contributions are huge. I mean, you could argue... I won't argue on I won't argue. I won't argue on camera. But they're very, very important. Okay. Mother's yeah, mother's book. right here. Yeah.
5: Thank you very much. Um, I, uh, I'm representing Embassy of Azerbaijan. My name is Aykan Hajizade. I'm a political officer. I would like to follow up uh, with question uh, raised by Mr. Pomeraz and gentlemen here, with regard to the connection and interlinkage uh, between uh, LDA and FARA, And uh, uh, Mr. Pomeranz raised the question about the consequences. Uh, Until recently, you were uh, representing uh, yourself uh, as a a grassroots organization, uh, as a 501, uh, but recently as a crew organization raised this uh, case uh, in front of the um, uh, Department of Justice. Uh, uh, with regard to your uh, activities Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, relations that you were uh, uh, raising and uh, promoting uh, the causes of Armenians here uh, that could be uh, uh, characterized as FARA or LDA? Uh, At the same time, your your organization is uh, uh, representing itself uh, as an organization uh, associated with the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, Mm -hmm. which is the political party uh, in Armenia, and uh, you were advocating uh, those causes that goes, uh, uh, in most cases, beyond the uh, U.S. national interest. So my first question is related to that. Uh, how, uh, what would be your uh, argument against that? Uh, and second question: You, uh, you've said that your major uh, uh, line of uh, uh, advocacy uh, is Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, and in most cases you were against the uh, peace initiatives. Uh, recently, you've uh, raised uh, your. Uh, 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 Call for not supporting the uh, Madrid Principles at the same time. uh, CBNs between Armenia and Azerbaijan that goes not only the interests of uh, United States but also that is supported by Armenia and uh, uh, the recent uh, journalistic exchange between Armenia and Azerbaijan. You were against that. So, uh, what is your vision uh, as an organization in solving this conflict? Thank you.
2: Okay. Tell me your name again.
5: Icon. Icon. Okay. Thank you, Icon. Um, There's a lot there. I wrote
2: down some of it. I'm not sure I can catch all of it. Um, The ANCA is a um, 501C4, which means we can do advocacy and we can endorse uh, candidates. There is also uh, a C3, which is called the ANCA Endowment, which can accept tax-deductible donations but generally doesn't engage in advocacy in the form of supporting legislation or uh, endorsing candidates. So there's a a church-state split between um, the nonprofit and the non-nonprofit, and that is extremely common in Washington. And you know we, we do all the compliance and the due diligence on that. So that's one point you made about, I guess, about tax status. Then this FARA, right? I mean, our, our membership are U.S. citizens, a huge majority, which, uh, which was born in the U.S., and have, I mean, we're U.S. citizens. And the fact that we might care about something doesn't make us less citizens. And like, I, I, you may have a countryman. You may be uh, someone of Azerbaijani heritage. And and they're a U.S. citizen, and, and they feel strongly about Azerbaijan. Maybe they have a view on Karabakh that is similar to yours, or the, the government of, of, of um, the Aliyev government in, in Azerbaijan. That doesn't discount. I can't go to them and say, I discount your state, being a stakeholder in the U.S. enterprise, in our democratic enterprise, because you happen to hold the same view of President uh, Aliyev of Azerbaijan. He's a citizen. He holds a view. Your president holds a view. He's the a, a head of a sovereign state. There's a citizen here who's a you know, full stakeholder. He's as much a citizen as I am, right? And I wouldn't try to discount his or her um, right to speak out in this country because, A, they're born overseas or they have roots overseas, we all do, by the way, and or because they happen to agree or disagree with anything that anyone else happens to say. They have the right to, to approach the altar of American democracy as a full and an empowered stakeholder. So I don't like... I, I, I don't like... Sort of trying game, that game gets played on a lot of people, and it's been played on a lot of people throughout American history. This notion of you step back, you 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 keep your head down, you shut up because something, and then you finish the sentence with you're this color, you're this background because your parents were from here, or because you know you you are associated or have some affiliation with relatives in a different country. That's not I, I've never liked that. I, I wouldn't want it done to me, and I wouldn't want it done to you. So that's my sense of like citizenship and this this fara idea. We're Americans, we speak up, you know. Some people agree, some people disagree. Some of the people who agree are here, some of them are around the world. But you know what, this is our democracy. Thank God we can resolve and adjudicate these issues peacefully. So that's that. Um, the Madrid principles, I mean, that's a long topic. But for those of you who don't know, um, the OSC has held, uh, created a platform to solve the Nagorno-Karabakh issue. And it's, it's, it's kept the peace by and large uh, for, for a couple of decades now, which is a good thing. The current plan on the table... I'm not sure that uh, the president of Azerbaijan supports the Madrid principles. I don't even know. I'm not sure. Do you know if he, knows, if he supports it? Of course. The Bolsa- <coughs> Azerbaijan has expressed their support mm-hmm. and, uh, Okay, the group okay, okay. okay. I'll, 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 I don't want to... This is not the topic of the discussion, but l- by and large, we think the, the proposal is asymmetrical. We think it it uh, front loads the, the concessions on the Armenians up front and that it defers the... the the concessions by Azerbaijan to a later, kind of unspecified date—we think it's asymmetrical—and that's the message we take to our legislators and our um, uh, our elected officials and the, uh, the executive branch. How how might we possibly do otherwise, right? If we hold a view, why wouldn't we express that view? You may not like that view; doesn't make it any less legitimate. I, like, I, like, there's no—I don't get—I don't have like. This is what I think as a citizen. This is what my group believes as, as, a, as a civic institution in America. Let me go ask the Azerbaijani government if that's okay to talk about. It's like, you, why don't you just say this? I disagree with your position, but not try to delegitimize our voice in raising our, our views. That makes sense.
6: Thank you. Uh, Wayne Mary, American Foreign Policy Council, uh, 501c3. Uh yeah. former American diplomat of Welsh extraction. <laughs> I'd, like, I'd like to challenge you both on a question of conflict of interest. Look, there's nothing unusual about what you d- both do and your organizations do. That goes back at least to George Washington's second term. America's a nation of nations. Uh ethnic groups in this country have advocated for the, the interests of their mother countries. Uh, throughout our history, absolutely nothing new or unusual about it. I don't have any problem with an American citizen with mixed ancestry, ethnic ancestry, having mixed loyalties, until you get to the point where you become an official of the United States and you take an oath, whether you're in the military, a member of Congress, diplomatic service, intelligence services, you take an oath which requires exclusive and unitary loyalty. But people who do have an ethnic background that is known are frequently approached by foreign governments representing those countries to claim that their loyalty really belongs to the mother country. And I have known many occasions when the same thing has happened from domestic American ethnic advocacy groups who will go to a person in an official position in the United States and demand that their loyalty be to the mother country. And I have seen it happen in, in a number of cases, including involving not your organizations, but the countries you both advocate for.
2: I have a lot to say about that. Okay. Oh, but I don't, wanna, I don't wanna jump in. Okay, okay. okay. I mean. First of all, all, the the phrase loyalty to mother country, I mean, I don't accept that as a given, right? I think America shouldn't, I think as an American, we shouldn't lie about genocide. Is that a loyalty to a mother country? I think that um, the powers of government, the just powers of government, are derived from the consent of the governed. That's my view on Artsakh. Am I loyal to anything there other than the Constitution? I mean, you can play it like that, but it also—if you, I mean, if you want to take it a little deeper. Let me say this: Why is it that so much of U.S. foreign policy and U.S. diplomacy and U.S. military has focused on Europe for the last two centuries? Does that have something to do with the fact that we were settled by Europeans, maybe by some Welsh? Why didn't we have that? Why didn't we have that same orientation toward Asia or Africa? Right? So the idea that this is the baseline, right? And the baseline is uh, this particular orientation, this trajectory, this momentum that we have as a nation, and if you veer off of that, you're um, the dissenter, right? Um, And if you stick with it, well, then you're the loyal team member. Like, I don't accept that. I don't accept that. We have an orientation because of who we are as a nation, who the the backgrounds of the people who came here and set those policies, right? Those developed over time. They took on a certain um, uh, uh, gravitas, right? And sort of a, a holy nature, right? But guess what? just as those policies were determined in the 18th and 19th centuries, right, so too are they being uh, um, divined from the population in the 21st century, right? So I wouldn't automatically set as a standard, this is the the, sort of the holy altar of US foreign policy and we must all bow to it. It's like, how about this? We all have our opinions about what we think is right and we bring that to the political uh, arena and we we work it out through democratic systems and we we, we accept the result. All that being said, Foreign interference is absolutely wrong, and treason is, is treasonable. I accept that. But if a foreign government is coming here recruiting people to do their work um, uh, surreptitiously, illegal, and it should be punished. If, and, and in any manner of that type of sort of coercive or surreptitious manipulation of American foreign policy, I, I would draw a bright red line, as I think you, you described, on that issue. But, but I, I'd be very careful about... Describing other things that are entirely legitimate. I would be very careful, about. I would be very careful about painting those very legitimate activities with um, with that brush. Like for example, I, I am not from Africa, but an African, maybe a recent immigrant from Africa, might have a very, very different view of U.S. policy toward I don't know, Brexit, right? Than someone whose family came from England. Like I don't know what they bring, but I know if they're a citizen, they're an equal shareholder and maybe The day will come when the U.S. policy toward Africa will be the main driver of our nation's foreign policy. Maybe that'll be a result of not treason or interference, but just citizens deciding this is the direction they want their country to go. Not sure if that made too much sense, but that's—I'd love to talk to you about it later as well. Okay, Elena.
1: Thank you for that question and and that comment. Um, I want want to um, emphasize that I'm I'm an academic. I'm reporting um, on an academic study that I conducted. Um, I'm not, even though I am a Ukrainian American, I'm not necessarily here reporting on my experience. I'm here reporting on what my participants have told me. And what my participants have told me um, in this academic study um, is that they view themselves as Americans first, and this engagement or advocating for Ukraine is just a form of philanthropy. Uh, because they believe that it's in the interest of the United States states to help Ukraine, to support Ukraine. Um, are they tapping into their cultural and ethnic heritage? Absolutely. Um, you know, obviously that uh, passion is also motivated by uh, their personal connection to uh, the homeland of their ancestors, but not necessarily their homeland. Um, it is definitely a phenomenon, right? Uh, it it, it informs, informs their identity, uh, we're, we're definitely uh, you know, talking about identity politics um, uh, playing out as well. Uh, but I would say that, again, it's from what my participants have told me, that they, they, they draw the line um, at differentiating between U.S. national interest and Ukrainian national interest. They're not advocating for Ukraine's national interest. They're advocating for the Ukrainian people uh, and for the U.S. government to support uh, the Ukrainian people. Um, in their fight, in whatever needs they have in fighting this um, – ag- uh, the, uh, the Russian aggression. Um, but it, again, to, to emphasize, it's not a, f- a function of loyalty. It's a more of a function of expressing their views um, and, and engaging in phil- philanthropy that they uh, connect with.
7: Hi, I'm Carl Alto uh, with the Joint Baltic American National Committee. Uh, just a real quick question, and then I'll say just a, just a couple things. But uh, uh, specifically for we're Elena, we're, about time is
0: short, so got it. Focus on the question,
7: uh, Elena. About uh, any did you uh, delve at all into the Crimean Tatar uh, community and and any of their advocacy? Uh, and, and then I just have to say, since the Baltic speaker was, was missing today, that I've been ad- advocating professionally on Baltic-American issues for over 20 years, and I uh, was trying to contain my excitement about everything you said, because <laughs> I felt like I was looking in the mirror, and I recognize a lot of that. I'm here with a few of my compatriots and colleagues today, and happy to talk with anybody afterwards. But um, uh, so uh, we have swum upstream and downstream, uh, had to feed some uh, vegetables to the kids, <laughs> uh, but uh, but you know, to to some uh, success, Native enlargement being probably, like in my time, uh, the biggest thing. And we work with your communities, because we advocate for, uh, you know, on the Armenian genocide, on lethal weapons for Ukraine over the years, and and we'll continue to do so because we're smaller communities than, than Armenian and Ukrainian communities in the U.S., and, you know, we have to stick together. Thank you. Thanks. Okay.
0: Right here? Microphone. Right in front.
8: I wanted to ask about, uh, I really do think that these are two very, very different examples. I mean, yours is much more like the Baltics. And I want to know how old are the people who really are in the movement, and are they tied to the church and also tied to keeping the culture alive and keeping the language alive? And as to Ukraine, Ukraine, you mentioned the young groups, and I would argue that as to Ukraine – most everybody supports Ukraine these days, at least if you're, excuse my language of being partisan, at least if you're a Democrat. And, and, uh, and the, but the cause, I mean, not the Russian-controlled government of 2010, but that was my question. Origin, and I know in the origin, too, the Ukraine situation was the church and keeping the language and keeping the dances and keeping all and keeping all that alive.
2: Well, in terms of uh, generations, uh, absolutely, like, somehow or other, we've been able to keep our organization, our advocacy going multiple generations. Uh, We're probably into our fifth generation of Armenian-American advocacy. Um, In terms of the church and the community and culture, if it was a pyramid, if advocacy was a pyramid, the base of it is, you know, identity, family, church, and those things have to exist for the advocacy to to work well. You, You know, you can't have a weak community or a weak church and strong advocacy, so you know, it, it yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, you need a strong base and then you can do strong advocacy.
1: So what was the question? Did you have a specific question? No, I mean, you,
8: you mentioned young people and I would argue that young people could be almost, you know, it could be, you know, you find your Ukrainian uh, thing or even if you were, maybe even if you were a Jew now, I mean, if you were a Jew, because there's a Jewish president now and you were from Ukraine. I mean, it's all, it's very different because it's so much of a broader issue right
1: now. Um, right. Um, I, I think that the, the, with the case of Ukrainian advocates, it, it's really so multi-ethnic uh, and multi-generational and diverse exactly because it it incorporates younger and, and older diaspora groups or, uh, I think, Ukrainians. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you said everybody supports Ukraine. Um, I wouldn't, um, uh, that has not always been my impression. Um, and there's, you know, Russian influence campaigns are, are, are very effective in the U.S. as well. So they're, you know, they're up against uh, some real challenges there, those who advocate for Ukraine. But again, I'm, I'm glad to hear that the public perception is that everyone supports Ukraine, but I wouldn't take it for granted. I, I, I don't think that it's a default setting necessarily. There's, there's also a lot of effort that goes into um, sort of promoting, getting those messages out, and, and promoting the Ukrainian cause. Lydia, thank you to the bo- both
9: presenters. Mm. I think that uh, the question that I like to ask uh, was primarily is primarily for. Olena, but perhaps it will shed some light on the tension that we hear about, you know, what is the essential U.S. interest and whether or not the ethnic groups uh, are actually aligning themselves in their adv- advocacy efforts. And so that that takes me back to the VENT diagram that you had, where you had the interests of the groups, then you had the interests, electoral primarily interests or re-election interests of the um, these legislative representatives that, you know, we have registered lobbies and others Um, but then there is this vague area of executive government interest that has to align with them in order for action to take place and maybe that's what we're referring to as you know U.S. national interest or you know loyalty to the U.S. because that decision is somehow encapsulated there of what it is that the um, you know U.S. foreign policy is and whether or not these advocacy groups are actually Um, overlapping. So what is in that third circle, precisely?
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right in that, um, you know, who who gets to define what the U.S. national interest is. I think there's no formal coordination between Ukrainian advocacy groups and uh, U.S. government, right? So they don't represent the U.S. government uh, when they engage um, in promoting the Ukrainian cause or, you know, uh, America's interests in, in Ukraine, national interests when it comes to Ukraine. Um, I, I think that the Ukrainian advocates here in the U.S. You know, get the signals from so the, the information space available to them as far as what U.S. interests are, um, but I, I don't think – I didn't find any formal coordination as far as promoting – Uh, the agenda of this specific administration. These are more sort of broad values uh, of uh, protecting Ukrainian democracy, territorial sovereignty, upholding international law. So they're more broad in their nature. They're not specific to um, our strategic culture or um, um, our security, national security strategy or national defense strategy. Um, So it's, it's not, I wouldn't say that there's that level of coordination. There are more uh, um, consistent in terms of global messages and the way the United States projects itself overseas uh, in terms of upholding uh, sovereignty, upholding, upholding democracy, and, and rule of law, um, but not in the nuanced sort of U.S. strategic engagement in, in Ukraine way, because they're, they're simply not you know, authorized to do that um, and, and it wouldn't be ethical um, but overall what i have found again from what my participants have told me it has to do with uh, european security architecture uh, that the united states is protecting that security architecture that was designed after world war ii Um, And, you know, Russia's aggression in Ukraine showed that the extent to which Russia will go to protect its sphere of influence and that the United States should be responding to those signals, um, you know, uh, with in-kind, with similar uh, commitment and intensity. Um, So, you know, as far as, um, you know, who gets to define U.S. national interest, um, I don't think that's the ambition. Uh, The the coordination and alignment is more – general, in nature, um, as far as American values are concerned, not as far as the specific strategy of this specific administration.
0: Okay. Um, So we're going to take these three questions together, make them short, and then we'll give our speakers uh, one final word. So one, two, and three.
3: First of all, thank you so much for your interesting presentation. My name is kyung Lee, and I'm a exchange student from South Korea, so I don't have any, like, natural vested interest in U.S. policy toward Ukraine or or Armenia, and uh, but I have one question for Mr. Hamperian. Uh, yesterday Professor Joseph Nye gave us a lecture, and during the lecture he mentioned about his conversation with former ambassador Samantha Powers, and ambassador Powers said uh, President Obama had promised to denounce the Armenian uh, genocide in while he was seeking re-election in 2012, but when he was about to he was supposed to uh announce the denunciation in two thousand fifteen the one hundredth anniversary of that he said the situation in Turkey with Turkey and United States got so complicated and in- intense that he thought it would harm the American like initiative in the region, so he decided not to de- uh, announce the declaration of denunciation and amb- ambassador powers had said I warned him that he might get domestically punished for breaking the agreement that he made to his voters and uh, Since 2015 was just a year prior to the 2016 presidential election. I was curious how that uh, How the President Obama's decision not to denounce that? uh, affected the Armenian American voters voters or the organization's attitude toward the presidential election or maybe elections after that Okay, and right here
5: Thank you very much. My name is Paol Sharikov. I'm from Russia currently a fellowship uh, a fellow at the University of Maryland, College Park. Uh, thank you very much for both of your presentations. I have a, a, a question concerning both of your countries, Ukraine and Armenia. In the recent years, both countries had a very unique and uncommon experience for an post-Soviet countries. They had a peaceful transition of power, uh, which will hardly ever happen in Russia, but uh, how your, um, uh, to your uh, opinion, the advocacy and uh, uh, lobby groups in Washington, how their efforts in representing the interests of Ukraine and Armenia have changed because of these events in your countries, in Ukraine and Armenia. Thank you. Okay. And third question. Yes, uh, thank you. I'm Marc Johns, visiting Fulbright fellow of uh, Johns Hopkins Science. My question goes to Alena about the last point. Uh, so your respondents suggested uh, more efforts with other interest groups or so other ethnicities. So which uh, ones they were referring? Uh, and uh, the, the other question is, would uh, they also be willing to uh, contribute to efforts of other groups? And which ones? Thank you. Okay. Who wants to go first?
2: Okay, on the the Samantha Power question. um, For those of you who may not know, she wrote a book uh, while she was uh, teaching at Harvard called uh, A Problem from Hell. I think the first two chapters dealt with the Armenian Genocide, and she's quite an expert on the Armenian Genocide. She got got into the NSC, later became ambassador to the UN, and uh, she, um, before entering office, and I understand while in office, was an advocate for U.S. recognition of the Armenian Genocide, as, of course, are we. Uh, Ultimately, though, the, the president did make a promise, not in 2012, but in 2008, he made a promise, um, very serious promise, which uh, very carefully written well written uh, pledges multiple multiple times, but ultimately, the president uh, chose not to to do that. he chose not to honor his pledge he chose not to recognize genocide and that 's the province of presidents, right? Presidents have to decide these types of things, decide the morality, the interests the r- repercussions in ways that citizens don 't and we don 't like that decision, but we can respect um, that decision uh, because that 's again like we are citizens but no one elected us president. this is the president's decision right So that's that uh, number one number two, I there wasn't I think it did cast a shadow on the 2016 race um, for Armenians I, you know we're not a huge electoral group but in states like Michigan that were very close, uh, Armenians are there, Wisconsin and others uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio. Um, I would say that uh, uh, Secretary Clinton's legacy, was her own legacy on this issue. She was asked once during a town hall meeting at the state department, you know, what do you think about Armenian genocide recognition and she said, "Well, you know, it's really just a historical debate. You know, it's an open historical debate, you know, let the the scholars take a closer look." Which is like that's like 30 years ago. That's like going back to the 80s. That was a terrible answer. And we thought Obama was just being silent, which is we were offended by that. But then she took it way back and every Armenian kind of got that clue, that memo went around and everyone's like, "What?" Like, you know, like that's, that's terrible. Uh, but to be honest with you, uh, uh, candidate Trump had no record on our, our Armenian issues. And in fact, because he didn't come up through the normal political process, had no opportunity to have a record on Armenian issues. So I don't think – I think there was some skepticism about uh, Hillary Clinton and, and her statement and then some just like, you know, question mark over Trump. So I don't think – I don't think there were very, very strong feelings one way or the other, like there were in 2008. The, the Obama-McCain race saw Armenians very enthusiastically support Obama.
0: Do you want to comment oh, about yeah. the peaceful,
2: peaceful uh, transition? Yeah, we, I mean, uh, we welcome the peaceful transition in Armenia. Uh, we're glad to see that democracy is working there. Um, our work becomes easier in Congress when we're able to talk uh, about all the great things that are happening in, in Armenia, the anti-corruption, the pro-democracy, all these reforms that are happening, the, the strengthening of U.S.-Armenia relations. Um, it's it's all positive, and, and, and we welcome that. Uh, we're not really players in Armenian politics. You know, we don't – I'm glad, like we've, we've worked with four different presidents, all different kinds of leaders, and you know, we work on a serious basis with all of them, primarily on issues that we, we have in common, right, which are usually foreign policy issues, issues that we care about, issues they care about. So we don't really get into too much of the domestic politics, but we're happy about the positive changes. Last word.
1: Uh, thank you for those questions. Now, as far as uh, peaceful transfer of power, again, it's not to be taken for granted. Um, you know, it's, it's not by inertia alone, and, and I think that you, uh, advocates here in the United States is exactly trying to um, get this message across, is that it takes consistent effort, that it's, you know, advocacy doesn't stop, uh, regardless of uh, events overseas or, or changes in, um, uh, in domestic politics. And I think as far as what, how it changes, how, how it changes the dynamic of um, uh, various groups' involvement in, in foreign policy. In the case of the Ukrainian community group, um, and again, I'm speaking on behalf of my participants. Uh, what I um, observed, uh, what I was told, is that that uh, feeling intensified. Uh, it's not new. So advocating for Ukraine for a lot of this group is not a new dynamic. It didn't, um, you know, that that need didn't arise in in 2014, 2013, 2014. It just it, it, it intensified. Um, and the network remobilized, re energized. Um, but the, the events triggered and intensified that, that sense of um, need to advocate uh, for, for Ukraine um, in the U.S., but it's not a new dynamic in a lot of these groups. Um, and as far as whether um, the Ukrainian groups would be willing to also help out other ethnic organizations, I would say yes. Sure, <laughs> the answer. Um, but again, I don't want to uh, speak on their behalf. It has more to do with um, informational support. Um, it, it, it's 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 uh, it's not promoting a specific agenda. Uh, it's more again general support um, and and uh, you know informational support, coordination, uh, cooperation as far as various cultural events are concerned. Um, and and things of that nature, but not necessarily political coordination. That did not uh, appear to be on the agenda among the participants that I interviewed.
0: Well, we're going to bring our discussion to a close. I want to thank our speakers. I want to thank the audience. And I look forward to everyone uh, attending future Kennan Institute (laughs) events.